I feel like that says it all. <laughs> it's always a good work on those videos. I love that. Well, welcome Seacoast. Good to be here with you today. Uh, a week after Easter, so it's always fun to, to be back together. For those of you who are families in the Encinitas area, a lot of our kids have been on spring break, and tomorrow they return. And uh, yeah, woohoo, I know, right? <laughs> I, if you don't travel anywhere during spring break, this is just a very long time in the middle of the year where you have to find stuff to do um, during the day. So, um, yeah, spring break is over t- tomorrow. My family and I, this last week, we, in fact, just got back. We went up to gold country in northern California, um, went to uh, see if we could strike it rich. Um, I am at work today, so uh, we didn't, but we had a good time. And uh, the uh, 500 miles each way in the car um, was bonding for our family. So that's always very good. Uh, let's take some time here today as we, we're going to get started in just a moment on the series called Renovation. And uh, today's the first day of it. And this, the point of this series as we speak about renovation is we believe here at Seacoast that we are people who are under construction. That we, none of us have arrived, none of us are at the point in our lives where we can say, okay, God's done working on me and I am now complete. And none of us are people who uh, are so far gone that God cannot do a work in us. So we're going to spend the next uh, several months kind of talking through, looking at stories out of the Gospels and how Jesus interacted with his disciples in how he was transforming and renovating their lives. And so that's the point of this, and we uh, certainly hope that you will journey with us in the next couple uh, months as we look at these great stories and see how God is working on people. So uh, I invite you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 5. That's where we are going to begin today. And uh, while you're doing that, uh, join me in prayer. God, we thank you uh, for this morning. I thank you for the reminder uh, last week of Easter and just the hope that comes in you and that even death cannot hold you back, and that you've offered us new life, and uh, none of us are so far that we're out of your reach, and Easter reminds us of that. And uh, God, now as we enter a new series, uh, help our eyes and and ears be open to you and what you want to do as you take that new life in us, and you continue to renovate and transform us into the people you want us to be. And uh, remembering this is all about your grace at work in us. So we are so grateful for that and uh, pray for this morning. And would you teach me as I speak this morning and uh, open our eyes to you. In your name, amen. In Luke chapter 5, we begin and, and the scene is set on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee, which is in the northern region of modern day Israel. And on shore, it was a small little fishing village, and, and the economy of this place was certainly fishing was a, a, and actually a pretty good profession. It was a difficult profession, but it brought in some income. And, and the scene that we see here in Luke chapter 5 actually has this family that has a fishing business. Perhaps they were actually somewhat prosperous because we know that they have other people working for them, and maybe it's been a business that's been around for a while, but we know that they're fishermen. And in this region of Galilee, we also know that the Jewish people growing up there often were known to be particularly pious. They were committed to their faith. They're committed to their religion. They're committed to their scriptures and, and, and were 
being raised in an area where they would spend their early years of memorizing Scripture and, and memorizing the Torah, which is the idea of, of the, the first five books. And then they get into the prophets and the writings and they would spend time meditating on them and, and learning them through their childhood. So they were particularly interested in knowing what God had for them. But in this particular region as well, in, in Galilee, there was something that didn't sit well with them. And what didn't sit well with them is they were under the oppression of the Roman Empire. And because of that, not only did they have to tolerate having the Roman soldiers around, but they had to tolerate seeing altars and temples going up to these foreign gods right there in the land where their God, the God of Israel, said, I want you to live. So if you were a little Jewish boy growing up in this region and you were committed to your faith and you saw this, it would be frustrating to you. And as you grew older, we find here today this group of fishermen who probably were maybe teenagers. At the point when they decided they weren't going to go on to continue studying Hebrew Scriptures under a sage or a teacher, but they were going to enter into the family business, so we find them today under the family business, but living in this region of Galilee, under Roman occupation. And one of the things they didn't like about the occupation is as a fisherman, you'd bring in your fish, and when you brought it in, you would have, uh, you could trade it in the market that morning. But part of your profits had to go to the Caesar who was on his throne in Rome. And another portion of your profit had to go to the regional governor who oversaw your area. A portion of your profit had to go to support the, the legion of armies that were also occupying your area. And then a portion of that had to go as well to a tax collector who had to take it from you, who met you there in the market to count your fish and say, these are ours, those are yours. So imagine you're in a profession where you're working very difficult hours, working all night long in a land where you feel like this is supposed to be God's land. And you're under foreign occupation. And you've been reading the scriptures your whole life that say one day God will deliver you from this. And every day you come in with your fish, you're reminded that that day has not yet come. That we still are under the oppression. Think of what the conversations must have been at night for these Jewish followers who grew up memorizing scriptures and they were out all night fishing. And when you fish, let's be honest, there's a lot of time to talk. <laughs> the particular style of fishing they would do is it, it only worked really at night. And so they'd row out in their boats and drop these nets down. It wasn't just with a line and a cast. And they'd drop a net down and and extend it past an area based on where they thought the currents of water would go and where the fish would swim in large schools. And you'd leave the nets out there and you'd have your other partners in another boat and connect it to the other net when you'd pull it in and hope that there's something in there. You'd do that all night long and you have plenty of time to think and talk. In the scene we find in Luke chapter 5, there's a group of fishermen who had just been doing that. See, there's something more we learn about them as we read the other gospel stories, the other writers that kind of give us some other details. And we find that one of them, Peter, has a younger brother named Andrew. And Andrew seemed to have a particular interest in his faith. See, he was a follower of this guy named John the Baptist, who was known as a prophet in Israel 
who was preaching out of the scriptures and giving them more understanding. And Andrew was learning from John the Baptist. And then one day, something really strange happened. As another sage, another teacher walked up. His name was Jesus. In their language, it's Yeshua, which meant Savior. He walked up and John, the prophet, looks at him and says, Here is Jesus, one who I am not even fit to touch and untie his shoes. Can't even be near him. Andrew heard John say that and say, who is this guy? And Andrew began following Jesus and this new teacher and said, are you the Messiah? Are you the one that John has been telling us about? Could you be the one who's going to deliver us? Will you set us free from this life we're living? And he began listening to the teachings of Jesus. We read in John chapter 1 that he went and told his brother and said, Hey, I think we found the Messiah. Can you believe it? His brother went and he told their other friends who also were in the family business, John and James, who were fishermen, said, I think we found the Messiah. Come and see. Listen to his teaching. There's something different about this teacher. He's talking about the scriptures that we've memorized our whole lives, but he's telling us something new. Come and see. We learn also that they went and they told another one of their friends named Philip, who lived just the next town up the road, and said, you've got to see, we think we found the Messiah. Philip went and told his friend named Nathaniel. And Nathaniel proved to who he was. He was an elitist. And he said, wait, you mean the teacher from Nazareth? Nazareth? Could anything good even come from that town? I don't think so. He said, no, come and see. We think we found the Messiah. In Luke chapter 5, now we see some of these disciples who are not yet disciples. They're just fishermen, Jewish boys, wondering if this teacher is the one that God has been promising. Is he the one who's going to transform the world? Will he set people free? And they're on the shore and it's been a long night of fishing. In fact, Luke chapter 5 tells us that they were fishing all night and didn't catch anything. And when they were done, they bring in their nets. In this particular form of fishing, you'd have to extend your net on the shore and clean out all the seaweed and all the junk. And you would dry it and you would have to mend any of the holes and then roll it up nicely so that the next night you would go and do it all over again. And that morning in the market when you're drying your nets, here comes Jesus, the teacher in the area. And he begins speaking again and teaching. And what had become the custom of the area of the, of the times, people would listen to te- Jesus and were drawn to him. So the crowd started swelling. And you can picture these fishermen who are listening, oh, there's Jesus again teaching while they're cleaning up their nets. Oh yeah, I love this one. I love, he's talking about, blessed are those meek, they'll inherit the earth. This is a great, I love when he talks about that. And they're finishing up and cleaning up their nets. At one point, the crowds are so big, Jesus says, hey Peter, we know that they already got to know each other by this. He goes, Peter, let me get in your boat. I'm going to stand in your boat while I teach. He goes, go ahead Jesus, I'm just finishing up here. So he gets in the boat and keeps teaching. And Jesus continues on with his message as they finish up and start loading their nets back in the boat for another night. And as he wraps up his sermon, certainly later than he originally intended, it always went long. And uh, Okay, a couple of you got it. And uh, he puts it in the boat 
And he, they put their nets in the boat. And Jesus looks at Peter and says, hey, let's, let's take the boats out. Really, Jesus? I've been doing this all night long. I just kind of want to get home, get a shower, get some sleep. But all right, let's go. So they paddle out and say, really? Are you not going to paddle either? You're just going to sit there? Great. So they, they paddle out. And he says, let's get out in the deeper water. And so they go out a little deeper. And he says, hey, let your nets down. Let's do some fishing. Imagine what that must have sounded like. Since in Scripture, Luke is writing, and he just tells us, Peter just says, ah, Jesus, uh, we kind of just fished all night and didn't catch anything. But I think there was more to that conversation than what Luke tells us. I think it probably went something like this. Jesus says, hey, Peter, let's let the nets down. And Peter just kind of said, okay, Jesus, um, you are a really great teacher. You understand Scripture more than anyone I've ever known. I mean, you wrote it. Uh, And there's something about you that's very different. I get that. That's great. But I'm a fisherman. My dad's a fisherman. My grandpa's a fisherman. We've been here a long time. You're from Nazareth. That's in the mountains. Um, I know how to fish. I'm not going to tell you how to preach. Um, But fish here? And Jesus says, yeah, go ahead. After cleaning all their nets, they say, sure, we'll throw in our nets. And Jesus goes, no, 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 other side. Fine, other side. We'll humor you. They drop the nets in, and who knows how long they left them there. Perhaps they had a conversation. Maybe Jesus continued to ask them about what they thought of the Messiah. What were they expecting? After a while, he says, that should be enough time. Let's bring in the nets. They're like, okay, let's bring in the nets. Thanks, Jesus. So they start bringing the nets. Oh, and you're not even going to help do this either? Okay, thanks. And, and so they bring in the nets. They start pulling them in. And just after a moment, they say, wait a minute. I think we got one. Great. Wait a minute. We got a bunch. What's going on here? They call over to John and James. They get out to the other side of the net. Pull it in. We got a ton of fish. And they begin pulling in the nets. Could you imagine what that would have been like? The joy that would cover your faces. Last summer, I took my middle son out tuna fishing out in the ocean here. We went for uh, yellowfin tuna. And you kind of troll through this area where they think the fish are and they throw a couple lines out the back when they think it's close. And when the fish hook on that, you know you're in a school of tuna. So you'll hear fish on and the boat stops and everyone throws their lines in the water. And you want to see what it's like to have 30 grown men with their kids all of a sudden catch a bunch of tuna? I mean, that boat changes immediately. You're just going, yeah, everyone's smiling and laughing and pulling up these tuna and having a great time with it. And when I go on those, I always take how much it costs for us to go. And every fish we catch, I'm like 10 pounds, so right, I, I'm paying $50 a pound right now for tuna. We got a lot more work to do, son. This is not cutting it. <laughs> so when you start pulling them in, you, it's just something happens. It's so fun. Could you imagine you're out there pulling in these nets in first century? Many scholars believe they brought in, what the, how it's described, they brought in enough fish, it would have been a month's worth of salary. And, and to bring it in, and you, they're probably laughing and just going, this is great. I imagine Jesus rolled up his sleeves and said, oh, let me help you. Let me get this fish in here. Isn't this great? And in the moment of euphoria, they're thinking, this, I have never seen anything like this. But then one of them, 
probably the oldest one. His name is Peter. In the middle of pulling it in, sits down. Staring at Jesus. And something hits him. He no longer is smiling. In fact, he feels this great sense inside of him that he shouldn't be there. Because as Jesus is pulling in these fish and he sees everyone laughing and having a good time and I can imagine Jesus smiling and saying, isn't this great? And he's thinking, this is God's Son sent to us. And his response isn't, oh, all right, now we have the one who can help us catch more fish. We hear Peter's response and Jesus looks back and he sees Peter. I imagine he sits next to him. He's like, Peter, what's going on? And Peter looks at him and says, you need to get away from me, teacher. You've got to get away from me, Jesus. Because I can see now who you are. Nobody comes out here and just knows where the fish are. Nobody teaches the way you do. Nobody interacts with each other the way you do. There's something different about you. You are God's sent one. And I am a sinful man and I don't deserve to be in the boat with you. You've got to get away from me. Because I don't belong here. And Jesus, in His way, heard Him. He looks at Peter and he says, Peter, you're kidding me. I like to be here with you. He says, but no, I'm a fisherman. You don't get it, Jesus. I mean, I say things I shouldn't say. I've got a quick temper. I've got the kind of personality where I just kind of go all over the place. I've been known to have a mouth of a sailor, a fisherman. Jesus, I can't be around you. You don't get it. I am a sinful fisherman. That's all I am and all I'll ever be. And Jesus says, no. Peter, I want you to follow me. And if you follow me, you're going to be a fisherman. But you're going to join me in something much greater. And most of our translations say, I will make you a fisher of men. There's really no other way to translate that. It's hard to describe it. The word there isn't, I will make you a fisherman. The language there is, you're going to be a part of using, it's, it's kind of described as using these nets to capture people. But what he's saying is something more, because in the moment when there's dozens and dozens, hundreds of hundreds of fish, something that is unique, something that is going to change their lives right there, that one catch. Jesus is not saying, oh, one at a time, you're going to go be a fisherman. But no, you're going to join me in something greater than you ever imagined. When he said, I want you to come and join me, and you're going to be a part of capturing mankind, he's saying, I'm going to do something revolutionary. And I want you to join me in it. I want you to be a part. You think this is cool? Catching all these fish? Join me. And we're going to transform the world. 
The same one who later he said, on you, Peter, with your confession that I am Lord, I will build my church. The same one that he said at one point, Peter, I'm walking on water. Come out and walk with me. That same person who would sink, the same person, but who would try. He said, you are the one. Join me. You are going to see things and do things you would never believe. You see, in this moment, what we have happening is it is a picture of first century discipleship. Of a teacher calling followers to him and say, come with me. And learn from me. And be a part of what I am doing. See, because first century discipleship wasn't just about filling their head with knowledge. It was about when you would see your teacher, whatever he did, the point was you can do the same. So when Jesus says, come and join me in this, he said, Peter, what I'm going to do, I want you to learn how to do the same. Join me. Come with me. The sinful one who is unworthy. As we enter this series called Renovation, We talk about it's stories about grace at work. The point is this. You and I are fishermen like Peter. Sitting in the boat, and we are so unworthy of being in the boat with the Savior. We are so unworthy. We have so much work that needs to be done in our lives. Some of us, far more than others. But we all need the work. If you think that you don't need much work left... And, and you're married, just ask your spouse how much you need. And, and, and if, if you don't have a spouse, ask your friend. And if you don't have any friends, go get a friend and they'll tell you. And if they don't, then take a 500-mile drive with them and then they'll tell you what you have left to fix. <laughs> no, we are all people in need of renovation. Like Peter. But like Peter, Jesus is saying, will you come with me? And learn. And what we're seeing here is this. When I said this is first century discipleship, this is how it worked. A teacher would come and invite you to follow. And when that teacher invited you to follow, you know what that meant? It meant, I believe that you can learn from me and be like me. So what I want to do with the remainder of our time here today is look at this story in light of what it meant to be called to be a a student or a disciple in first century, and how that translates to us today. So the goal that we're going to do, so what we want to look at today is when Jesus calls us like he called Peter, what does he expect? What does he want? And I believe what he wants is the same as first century discipleship. See, in the first century, a discipleship in the century, that just means to be a student of your teacher. So to be a student of your teacher, the goal of this for a Jewish person was when you learned from your teacher, you expected that your teacher was emulating God. So the point was not to just change your behavior, but that your life would become one that would point to the Creator God. That was the point of discipleship. So let's get into a few things here. First of all, the Jewish understanding of discipleship in the first century, because this is going to make sense and it's going to matter. So the goal when we see this, because this is the whole backdrop of the disciples, is this. In Leviticus chapter 19, it says this. And and I know a lot of you have this book of Leviticus memorized, so I don't need to remind you, but here it is. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 2, says this. 
Speak to the congregation of the sons of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. This sentence right here is the entire goal of life for a pious Jewish person and should be for a Christian. I want you to look at the whole statement. Be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. The point is that in that understanding is we want to be holy because God is holy. And the point for them was to be like their creator, God. So when Jesus walks as God in flesh among us, he's the very essence of God showing us what it looks like when God walks on earth. So when he says, be holy as I am holy, he's saying, because I am this way, therefore you be this way. The goal of your life isn't that you're better, nicer people, so people go, wow, you are so nice. The goal is that our lives point back to God. It isn't that people will point to us. It's that they see us and say, wow, that is pointing somewhere else. It's not about us. It's about pointing back to Christ. Be holy as I am holy. The point is that we do what God does. We live as God would live. Now, what does it mean to be holy? There's a couple ideas here for holiness. What is holiness? First part of holiness is this. It, it, it equals to be separate. God is other than. He is not like the other gods or myths. He is not like a human. He interacts differently. So to be holy is to be separate. And separate, please don't misunderstand. It means, okay, as Christians, to be holy, it means we need to separate ourselves from everyone in our world. We need to make sure we have a, a barrier around us so that we're separate. No, it means that you are different. It means that you live differently. That you interact with your world differently. That when people see you, they say, there is something different about you. I can see it in you. The way you are. So to be holy is to be separate. Not separated. There is no separation of the sacred and secular in the world. That all th this earth is the Lord's and everything in it. So we don't separate, but we are different. The way we live. The way we interact. That should be apparent. There are times, I know in my life, when... Fortunately, I've had people, and even when I spent some time in the corporate world, when people would say, like, you do this differently. There's something about the way you interact with people that is different than I've seen anyone do this before. And those are the good moments. <laughs> There's times when people say, oh, you're just like everyone else. <laughs> We've all been there. We've all been there. It's a good song there. All right. <laughs> The other part of holiness is this. Not only are we separate. <laughs> now we know what's on his playlist. All right. <laughs> Not only do we want to be separate, but the other part of holiness is this. God is separate other than, but he is also good. See, don't think because God is other than everything else that he can be on his throne as like some crazy enraged God. No, he is holiness to the Jewish understanding, and for us today, is He is separate, but He is good. God is good. What's characteristics of God? Are his, he is a God who's just, who is a God of justice. He cares about that. He's a God of mercy. 
He's faithful, patient, kind, forgiving, loving. That is a characteristic. And, and that is probably also what makes him different. But for us, so not only should we be different than everyone else, but the reputation should be we also are good. We are good because our lives point to the life of Christ. They see us in who we, they see God in who we are. Jesus said this way when he's talking about discipleship and saying, be holy as I am holy. He worded it this way in Matthew chapter 5, verse 48. He says, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. I kind of prefer the other one because it sounds more attainable. <laughs> be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. This is G- Jesus' twist on that. In other words, you're not going to get there, but the goal is we want to be complete people as God is complete. That's the point. That's a background of discipleship. When he calls a disciple to follow him, the assumption is that he is a teacher who understands what this looks like, and therefore, as you follow that teacher, you're going to get a picture of what it looks like to live this out perfectly. And it is not easy. So what's the process that we learn in the first century? The process of discipleship. How did people learn? How did they grow? Uh, we, we get hints of this through history, but also we know that through Scripture we have some things. In John chapter 13, we have a perfect view of it. It says this in John chapter 13, verse 13. It says, Jesus is speaking to his disciples. And this is a scene where he just washed their feet. And that's one of the stories we're going to get to. So I'm not going to get into the story too much. But in this story, he says this, you call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, because that is what I am. If then the Lord and teacher washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you should also do as I did to you. Truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is one sent greater than the one who sent them. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. Jesus is explaining here, from a first century view, they would get it right away. For us, we go, oh, okay, yeah, you showed us an example. But no, this is the essence of how the teacher taught his students. He says, you saw what I did, now do the same. Learn from me. When I first became a Christian, I was in high school, and um, I never really spent any time in youth ministry or youth groups, and so it was um, before my junior year of high school, and I spent the summer um, hanging out with this youth group, and there was a a youth pastor who um, really enjoyed, loved hanging out with him. And really, what I learned from him was how you do youth ministry. Now, and, and this guy, and I was very impressionable, I was young, this guy was like six foot four, and he was like yoked, I mean... He was ripped, he was strong, he had big muscles that worked. Um, so this guy was like just cut, just huge. So I mean, obviously I imitated him well. And, um, <laughs> and, and, and one of the things that we would do is I remember, you know, we're a, a group of like 16-year-old high school boys, just like we could take on the world. And, and, and he would have this thing where he's like, yeah, try to take me down. And, and we were like a pack of wolves. There'd be like five of us. We're like... It's on. We are going to destroy you. And, and I didn't learn until, you know, as I became a youth pastor, and even as a father, there's like this uh, superhuman strength you have when you don't want to lose to your kids. But, and, and, and youth pastors have that. And so we would all five, like, take his legs, take his arms, and he'd just be like, you know, just beating us down. And, and those of you who never raised boys, that actually is a very affectionate thing to do. So we, we love that. The rougher it was, the more he's beating on us. We're like, this guy's the best. Um, 
And so I, I really learned youth ministry that way. In my first youth group, I was a junior high pastor. So I'd play basketball with these kids. They're like 12-year-olds. They'd go up for a shot, and I'd just swat it. Like, bro, get out of my house! You know, and because and, I learned from him, it's okay to humiliate them to make yourself feel better. And, and, and so even to this day, I volunteer at the elementary school on the playground. And, and, you know, these kids will come up to take a shot. And it's like, no, I tell them when we start, don't come in here. This is my zone. You come in here, the ball's going the other way. And I just knock it out of the way and, because it makes me feel better about myself. <laughs> uh, it's so fun. You know, it's also a godly thing. I'm teaching them humility. And, uh, <laughs> but, yeah, so I learned, I learned from that youth pastor that, you know, just the way to interact, even on something silly like that. I imitated him. It was what I learned. I also learned great things. I also at the time was a little punk skateboarder. And I remember that summer I was hanging out and there's some kids skating on the church property. He goes, hey, we should go tell them about Jesus. I'm like, you go do it. And he goes, oh, well, let's go meet those kids. I'm like, I know those kids. I was hanging out with them a few weeks ago before I was a Christian. <laughs> I'm not going over there. But he said, no, let's go. I learned to imitate it happens still to this day. I have a picture for you. My wife and I lived in Israel with our kids. And this is a picture in Israel today of a rabbi. Now, it's, it's totally out of place for us in modern America. But this is not uncommon to see of an Orthodox Jewish rabbi. And he's blowing a horn here. This is in a market called the Mahane Yehuda. And it's in Jerusalem. It's one of their largest markets. But this is at the beginning of Sabbath on Friday night. And he's blowing the horn and telling people the Sabbath has begun. Quit working. Get out of here. Quit working. And he'd take that horn and go get up in your face if you were still buying stuff or working and blow it and say, time for the Sabbath. Get out of here. Now, do you see that guy to his right about a foot away? That's his student. That's his disciple. To this day, this is how discipleship is done. He is one foot away. He doesn't have the horn. He is walking and observing everything his rabbi is doing. The point is, one day I will have the horn and I will be doing as my rabbi taught me how to do. And the rabbi is not saying, okay, now blow this horn with this note. He's just doing it. And the disciple, the student, is watching him and saying, oh, that's how you interact. That's what you do. This is a perfect picture of first century discipleship. I don't think Jesus had a horn all up anyone's grill blowing it saying, get out of here. But Jesus certainly had the idea of follow me closely and watch how I live and you will learn. This is what it meant when he said, follow me. He was calling them into this. Follow me. They had been wondering, is this the Messiah? Is this one we should follow? So when he says, yeah, come, it wasn't all that crazy. They were ready for it. The only thing that was crazy was the people he picked. Look at the people Jesus picked. I mean, Peter, mouth of a fisherman. His younger brother looked like he was pious. He was learning under John. He, had, he asked for these guys named John and James, who were the sons of thunder. That reputation of probably people who are taking over the world, maybe a little brash, one maybe was a little arrogant. He had one who, had a, who was an elitist. 
He called one who was a tax collector who worked for the Roman government and he paired him up with a guy named Simon the Zealot. Zealots were known as a terrorist group that actually attacked Roman officials. Jesus thought, this will be great, let's put them together. And um, they're going to be my disciples. And he said, okay, let's also get this guy who's going to doubt everything he sees. That'll be perfect. Oh yeah, and how about Judas? He's going to betray me and I'm going to die because of him. All right, let's go change the world. Jesus says, you will be the ones who will walk this closely with me and imitate me. Paul demonstrated that he understood this idea of imitating or discipleship in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1. Paul's writing to the Corinthians. He just says, be an imitator of me just as I am of Christ. This is how it was done. Imitate me, I imitate Christ. So when we are entering this series called Renovation and being people who are transformed, the point is we want to become more and more like Christ. We want to walk so closely with the Savior that we get how He interacts in situations so that when people look at us, it's actually pointing to Jesus. We learn by reading scriptures, studying the life of Jesus. You may have to learn from other people. You might have to find someone who's a little further down the road than you and say, can I learn from you? How do you interact? That's discipleship. But we all want to be people who are being renovated. Now some of you here this morning might say, you don't get it, Ryan. I am a mess. Some of your houses might look like they're almost complete and others, there's just a pile of rubble. And you think, can God renovate this? You feel like Peter who says, get away from me because there's so much work to do. It is not, this is not going to be pretty. Some of you are working through addiction. Some of you are working through habits you've been trying to break for a long time. Some of you aren't even willing to admit you have these things that God needs to transform in you. Some of you need to work through your perfection because you think that you're almost arrived and God's saying, no, (laughs) you need to continue to be renovated. I know for me, one of the things that's kind of a constant struggle is, is I hate not being perfect. I hate doing something and letting someone down. I'm, I'm not upset with the person if they say you let me down, but I get upset because I don't want to be that person. That's something God needs to renovate in me. Because what is it? I'm trying to find my worth like as if if I ever let someone down, maybe I'm not good enough. And God's saying, could you just rest being who you are? I'm transforming you. I'm working on you. You don't need that. What is it for you that God's transforming? As we enter the rest of this series and ask you to participate with us, I want to leave us with this great encouragement. And that's the last phrase, grace at work. And grace at work relates to this in Jeremiah chapter 9. I'm going to invite the worship team to start moving on up here while we read this. In Jeremiah chapter 9, it says, Thus says the Lord, Let not a wise man boast of his wisdom, Or a mighty man boast of his might. Let not a rich man boast of his riches. But let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on the earth. For I delight in these things. You see, God's saying, don't be people, don't think you need to walk through life boasting of the things you have or what you do well. It's not your wealth or your knowledge or, or your riches. It's not those things. Let, 
if you are going to boast, boast in this, that you know me and know the God that what? Demonstrates love, justice, and righteousness. That's what he delights in. Can we be a church of people who say we want to follow Jesus and we're following Jesus, we're being transformed, we're being renovated into people who care about justice and love and righteousness in our interactions and we don't care about all that we bring to the table, how perfect we are, how how imperfect we are. We care about our lives pointing to Christ. Can we be that kind of church? Because if we're kind of church, then we are going to be like Peter in the boat pulling in these fish and Jesus saying, do you see all of this? This is nothing. Join me and we will transform North San Diego County. But get over yourself. No, Peter, you are not qualified. You should not be sitting in the boat with me and you're perfect for the job. You are not qualified, but you are perfect for the job because Jesus is inviting you in. Can we be that? And boast in this, not on how much knowledge we have, not on how perfect we are or we're not, not on how far we have to go, but we're people whose lives point to Jesus. As we end here, we're going to have some time where we can respond in worship. And our response is, I'm going to ask you to take a moment to just bow where you are in just a moment. And just take a moment to allow... Jesus, the teacher, the God of the universe, who stood in the boat that day and looked at this group of imperfect people and said, what, you want to join? And let that Jesus speak to you this morning and remind you that He is inviting you in with all of your mess, with your pile of rubble that needs to be renovated, with the upgrades that need to be made, and saying, join me. And take a moment to just pray and ask God just to speak to your spirit right now, whatever that looks like for you. And then let's respond. Let's respond with our praise and just saying, it is about you, God. These songs are songs that are pointing to Christ. They're not pointing to you because the goal of discipleship is Jesus. That's the goal. Our lives point to the living God. Lord God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your call on our lives. Our imperfect and messed up lives. Where we often fall short. We don't get what you're doing. But God, I thank you that you not only call us, but you want us to follow. So this morning, Lord, would you speak to our hearts and would you... Allow us here at Seacoast be a group of people, a gathering of people whose lives point to you. Wherever we're at in that journey that's pointing to you. And move in this place now, God. Let's give you this time.